everyone. This is Regina. Hi, horse lovers. This is Lynn. This week on the Horse Industry Podcast. Steve, welcome to the Horse Industry Podcast. It's such an honor to have you here with me today. Oh, it's great to be here. It's interesting how these paths cross when it comes to the horse world. You know, I'm a storyteller. That's one of the reasons that we started this podcast. And I stumbled across this story about a racehorse named Linda's Chief, and it was written by you. And so I reached out to you and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a little background information on this horse from the journalist himself. And you and I got to talking last week and I thought, no, I need more. I, I need the Steve Haskins story because some of the things that you shared with me in our brief phone conversation has to be captured. Absolutely. I'm much more interesting than Linda's chief. <laughs> I think so. But Linda's chief is a cool story. And we will get to that towards the end of our chat today. But Steve, again, you are, you're a racehorse journalist. Is that, is that a correct labeling? It's as good as any of them. I guess that basically says it all. You know, you, you know people say racing writer, racing columnist, racing journalist. Racing journalist is probably the best one, encompasses everything. Perfect. How did you get started doing this? How did you become a storyteller? Oh, boy. How long is this, uh, is this podcast? <laughs> as long as you want it to be. <laughs> well, I never really had, you know, any interest in racing growing up. I sort of, you talk about stumbling upon something. I, I actually stumbled upon racing. I was a big sports fan. I had my sports heroes. I was actually working. I had started off with really menial jobs. I couldn't wait to get out of high school. I was not not very good at school. I just did not like school at all. Mm-hmm. And I took all kinds of menial, menial jobs, working at a printing factory and working as, in the mailroom at, at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. I mean, I just had no no real skills at all. Mm-hmm. And just one day, you know, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go to Roosevelt Raceway, which is the harness track in New York on Long Island. And I said, eh, I don't know. It's, it didn't interest me. But then I decided, yeah, why not? I wasn't doing anything. So we went with a, with a friend of his who was really into horse racing, into thoroughbred racing. And when we got to the track, I, I took a tremendous interest in it right away. I, the whole concept of handicapping horses and predicting what they're going to do just fascinated me. And what and, does that mean? I mean, honestly, I've been in the horse industry my whole life, not race horses. What does it mean to handicap a horse? Well, what they have is called, it's called past performances. And to the layman, it just looks like a bunch of numbers. I mean, just trying to decipher it. But it gives you each horse's race, how he ran, the time of the race, the fractions of the race comments on the race and you got to decipher everything put it together and try and come up with a winner and who's going to be the speed horse who's going to be the come from behind horse and i was fascinated by that i really was and i just took an automatic liking to it and then he started telling me about thoroughbred racing and about a, a favorite horse of his named grouse dark and, and another horse that was racing named damascus and all of a sudden it just hit me and i i just like wow right between the eyes i said this is the this is the greatest thing. I was really giving up. I was I was outgrowing hero worshiping and uh, in, in baseball players and football players and and I found I found new heroes in horses. I said, wow. I mean, 
the horses are the, the ultimate athletes. And if you're going to worship someone or something, why not a horse? That you know, is... No, it doesn't, they don't come with the problems and the stigmas attached to humans. And I started doing all kinds of research on it. And I just studied everything I could up on horse racing. And at the time, I was actually unemployed because I had actually working on Wall Street as an over-the-counter stock trader and hated that. I, it was just dog-eat-dog world, and it just wasn't for me. So I was out of work for like nine months, and my mother was not very happy about it. And, you know... <laughs> And finally, my father came to me one night and he said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I, I, I don't know. He said, well, what's what's your passion? What do you love? I said, I love horses and racing. He said, well, why don't you try to get a job in it? And I said, I don't, I don't know how to do anything. He said, well, maybe you can start from the bottom, work your way up. At least you'll be exposed to what you really love. So I sent some letters out and I got two rejections and I got one phone call from the editors at the time it was the morning telegraph which was the main issue the eastern edition or the main edition of the daily racing forum and the editor's secretary called me up and said that mr rosen saul rosen who was the big time editor wa wanted to see me tomorrow for an interview i said wow i said okay i started studying who won every kentucky derby i didn't know what i was doing i had no wow. clue and i walked in there and he asked me and he said well do you know how to type and I said, no. He said, well, he says, I tell you why. He says, go learn how to type and then come back to me. I said, oh, no, that will that for nothing. And then just what happens, I asked him, I said, well, while I'm here, is it possible to get the past performances of this horse, Graustark? And he mm -hmm. brought the librarian in. He had me go in there and he had, and the librarian had somebody make a copy of it. And the librarian told me, he says, you know, I'm going to need somebody here as my assistant. He says, why don't you see, you know, start off as a copy boy. You know, I was trading stocks on Wall Street and now he wants me to be a, a copy boy, you know, delivering uh, messages and stuff. And then when you learn how to type, you can come in the library as my assistant. And I go, wait, talk about kid in the candy store. Pictures <laughs> of horses, books on horses, everything about horses. You know, where I, that's where I'm working. I said, this is my hobby. Never mind work. Wow. And I said, okay, so... I never did learn how to type. I couldn't do it. I just had no ability to type at all. So I sort of faked it. And anyway, I started off as a copy boy. I eventually went into the library. And to shorten his story quite a bit, I went into the library uh, as his assistant. He left the library to go into advertising. I took over as head librarian. I worked there for years and years. The racing for moved to Heightstown, New Jersey. Started to freelance write for European publications. It grew and grew. I st finally started writing for the Daily Racing Forum, where I was now working, and eventually became their lead writer, covering all the Triple Crown, all the big races, going abroad. Went to the Blood Horse, which is the number one magazine, weekly magazine in horse racing. Went there as their senior correspondent. Also covered all the big races, was their lead writer. Went over the world covering races and you know, n not to sound too vain, but the highlight was 2016 when I was elected into the Hall of Fame in racing. <laughs> oh my gosh, goosebumps. So you went from, I mean, first of all, did anyone in your family have that horse DNA, that horse gene, or involved with horses at all? Not at all. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. We yeah. didn't, I, I never saw a horse. That um, is crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, the extent of my my wildlife was to, was to see an occasional squirrel running around. <laughs> Once in a while, I'd actually hear like a sparrow or something uh, flying. Yeah. I mean, we had no wildlife in there. You know, we had people walking their dogs and we had stray cats and stuff. I had no experience at anything with horses, but I automatically fell in love with them. And, and that really, took I, you around the globe. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what that's what it's all about. I mean, I've been covering races and writing features for a number of decades now, as I said. Although people consider me a writer or a journalist, I still consider myself a storyteller. I later found out, by the way, from a letter that my father, a seven-page letter that my father wrote from the South Pacific right before the invasion of Lady Gulf in World War II that he wrote to his boss that people read it now and they swear that I wrote it. Wow. And I, for some reason, my father was so enthusiastic when I got a job as a copy boy and I started taking pictures and he would show off my pictures and he would come to the track with me in the morning to see the horses. He just was so proud of me for being, really being nothing. And, you know, unfortunately, my father died at, you know, age 56 and I was still in the library at the time, really wow. the big, big, you know, big nobody. I've always felt from that, from the day he died, that he's been guiding me because I was always in the right place at the right time. And somehow his incredible writing ability, even though he was an engineer, his incredible writing ability was passed on to me. I always loved storytelling. So, you know, as a writer, basically, I want an eye-catching opening to hook the reader immediately and a closing that will touch them. Mm -hmm. But everything in between is storytelling. Mm -hmm. They're going to remember the story a lot more than your writing ability. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they complement each other, but it's a story that stands the test of time. So when I'm writing about horses and how they inspire us and touch us and the people behind the scenes, I want to feel as if I'm reading the story as well as writing it. Mm -hmm. I I want it to take on a life of its own as I'm writing and trying to find out myself where it's going to go. So, you know, and as far as, you know, the love of horses and saying that I did not grow up around horses, listen, we all love horses, whether we realize it or not. I certainly was never around a horse, like I said, growing up in Brooklyn, but I still fell in love with Black Beauty and the Black Stallion and and Trigger and Silver, you know, just as others did with Misty of Chincoteague, which touched, you know, so many young girls at the time. And heck, I mean, I even fell in love with Mr. Ed. You know, so it's a bond that goes back thousands, thousands of years. A lot of kids grow up and they turn to other interests and other endeavors. But that bond and the love of horses never dies. It just becomes dormant. And sometimes maybe it'll take a secretariat or an American pharaoh to awaken it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Others, it'll take a story like a war hero, like Sergeant Reckless, who has a Mm -hmm. statue at the Kentucky Horse Park for her bravery under fire in the Korean War, where she made the numerous trips between the lines carrying loads of ammunition on her back. Or it can go to even back to the horse you rode on a trail in a national park or a horse you rescued after their racing career and provided them with a meaningful and happy life. Or sometimes it's just the joy of watching an equestrian event and seeing the beauty and determination of a horse overcoming one obstacle or another. Like you mentioned, all the different kinds of horses, they all affect us in one way 
or another. It's that bond that, that goes back. I remember the first time I actually did ride a horse mm-hmm. was in, in Sequoia National Park with my wife and my daughter. And the feeling I got, I, you know, I had already been pretty well established, you know, as a racing journalist. And sitting on the back of a horse for the first time and having that horse do what I asked it to do. And I felt like, wow, you know, I'm really putting all my trust in this horse, you know, you know going through the woods and going downhill and up, up over rocks and everything. And there was a feel, some feeling about it that you have this incredible live creature under you. And I can, I'm sure p- people feel the same way when they, when they might ride a horse, you know, more in, in more treacherous territory, let's say, mm-hmm. or even a mule, you know, uh, down uh, the Grand Canyon. But that feeling of being on a, on a horse and saying, wow, I'm, I'm now part of that horse. And that horse is now part of me. And I remember going through the trail ride of, at Sequoia National Park and I had this just amazing feeling of closeness to that horse. And, you know, from my own perspective, as far as a racing rider, I feel you really can't be a true racing rider unless you feel this way about horses and how much they give us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of one of the things that really connected me to you when you and I were talking last week in that we both said that our job is to capture those stories. I, you know, you're doing it in one modality and I'm doing it through the podcast. You are much more seasoned and and successful than I am at this stage. We're working towards your kind of acclaim, but Capturing those stories is so important, as I shared with you. You know, I'm from the pleasure horse industry. My co-host is now showing cutting horses. Yet we are still that story about Linda's chief. And then I read some of your other work, like Invisible Ink. I mean, the Invisible Ink story to me, it knocked me, it knocked me off my feet. I mean, capturing those narratives. And sharing them. It doesn't matter if I'm in the pleasure horse industry or the racehorse industry. Like you shared, I'm interested in the Shingatigue ponies and in Sergeant Reckless. I want to know how did the Expo Square venue begin in Tulsa? It's all these pieces that come together. A horse person is a horse person. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah. The, you know, the main thing is, is going out and finding the story. You know, my greatest pleasure is is discovering a story that no one else has, like Invisible Ink, and no one had that story. Yeah. But you have to, in order to get it, I have two things about horse racing, two rules, okay? Mm-hmm. Go behind the scenes, talk to as many people as possible, and go where the other riders aren't. So okay. if, I, if I see 10 or a dozen or so riders around a trainer talking to him or an owner or something like that, I'll go somewhere else. I'll talk to the groom. I'll talk to the exercise rider. I'll talk to somebody else to get a behind the scenes story. In fact, I had written two behind the scenes stories on this year's Kentucky Derby winner, Rich Strike, uh, you know, one of which I sent you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, if, if you, when you get a chance, the third one is going to be my latest column, which goes up later today, which I think is the best story of all of them. If you want to see or read about a column about the, the human spirit and the and what a horse can do to a family. Mm. It's pretty remarkable. And it's, again, it's a story that most people haven't seen before. So it's like the third chapter of my articles on Rich Strike, but it should be up on secretariat.com later this afternoon. If you get a chance, I think you might enjoy it because it really does show the human spirit and the love of the horse and what one horse 
can do for one family and group of people. You always find them. That's that's the most rewarding part of my job. I, I even hate to use the word job because mm-hmm. it's something that I would have done. I would have done for free you know, right. on my own. You know, like I said, it was a hobby. Since I started working in the horse industry, and we're talking 1969, mm-hmm. I've never once woken up in the morning and saying, "Oh, damn, I've got to go to work today." I have, however, woken up sometimes and saying, "Oh, it's Saturday. I can't go to work today." Oh. You know, oh. I, that's how crazy. That's how crazy I am. Oh, you are I, so blessed. <laughs> so blessed. Well, you have a talent as well. How so? How do you keep? these stories organized. You have met so many people and you've been to so many races and you've traveled to so many places. How do you keep all this organized in your head and in your office? Is it a challenge or do you just have one of those brains that absorbs it all and remembers it? Well, each one has its own place. A a lot of it is in my head. I I can't tell you what happened a week ago, but Mm -hmm. I can tell you who won a certain race in 1972. Wow. Uh, so I can I can retain that, and I retain all my experiences, and I re- I remember things. I did store a lot of I had a lot of papers and a lot of folders, and keep keep a lot of information. Unfortunately, we moved from New Jersey to Connecticut about four months ago, so mm-hmm. I had to dump ev- mostly everything. Oh. Uh, so I, don't, I don't have the research material I did, but like when I covered the Kentucky Derby, I start preparing in January. By calling uh-huh. up owners, traders, breeders, people who who raise horses. One of the stories I sent you was about M- Medina Spirit, the woman who yep. paid a thousand dollars for him, and what she was going through, going through a divorce, and she stumbled upon this horse for a thousand dollars, and he winds up winning the Kentucky Derby. You know, stories like that. Trying to find out who raised the horse, who sold the horse, who consigned the horse to a sale. Then, when the horse gets to the races, who is the exercise rider? Who is the groom? I have all these quotes. However, in, 19, in 2009, <laughs> I used to go to the Churchill Downs to cover the Derby two weeks before the race. Whatever I didn't have, I, you know, I, I would bring with me tons of papers and folders. And I, would have, I was prepared, no matter who won the race. And when I went to Churchill Downs, I got there two weeks ahead of time. And there was one horse running that year named Mind That Bird, who was owned and trained by cowboys. Oh, and, the, and the trainer was was on crutches. He had broken his leg, and I didn't know anything about him. And I'd walk by the barn, and I said, "I don't even know who this horse is." And I'd say, "Well, I'll, I'll I'll talk to him tomorrow." Well, unfortunately, tomorrow never came. And I watched the race, and I watched mind that bird at the odds of fifty to one run away and win the race by six lengths. And I said, "Oh my God, I might as well have gotten to Churchill Downs five minutes ago. I have nothing." And I've got, and the thing is, I've got to write a thirty-five hundred word story by the next day, and oh. you've got to fill all that space, and you've got to give all background material. You got to, again, tell a story, not just report on the race. I got to let people know what the behind-the-scenes story is on this horse, the backstory, everything about the horse. I had absolutely nothing, oh, and I kept seeing this cowboy, and he's on crutches, and. I remember I ran into a reporter from Sports Illustrated after the race, and he said, I got nothing either. And he oh, ran down. He, was, he started interviewing anybody wearing a cowboy hat, oh. not knowing who they were or anything. And, and they had like a, a party at the Kentucky Derby Museum afterwards. And I went there, and I had tried talking to the trainer a little bit, but he was very aloof. He even 
shun the NBC reporter who was trying to interview. He wasn't all that friendly or so. I didn't know anything about the story. I said, who is this guy? Who is his horse? What the heck? And I went down there. And again, you got to be in the right place at the right time. And I came across the trainer's girlfriend who told me the entire story. No. Of how he had broken his leg and how a bunch of these cowboys and how they got into the derby and how he drove in a in a truck with the horse in a little van behind him, drove from New Mexico all the way to Churchill Downs. Nobody knew who they were. She wow. told me where they stopped, how long they stopped, what they had for breakfast. I mean, oh she my gave gosh. the whole itinerary. <laughs> and and all of a sudden the whole story came to light. And so I, I wrote the story and I said, it was, a, you know, it was a good story. It's not one of my best. My editor submitted it to the American Horse Publications Awards and it won, it won first, first place award. Oh, for, wow. For, well, then you got the scoop. That was the hard scoop to get. And you somehow snagged it. Well, to tell you, to tell you what a great story was, they eventually made a movie out of it called 50 to 1. Oh, my gosh. I got to know the producer and director very well and. It actually was a very good movie. They altered the truth quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. at some places, but it captured the whole essence of the story. But wow. here's a story that I just stumbled upon and was able to create something out of it. So you just never know. That's what's great about the the horse industry. You never know what's next. You never know who you're going to meet next, where the story's going to come. We are sponsored by Purple Power Equine. Looking to add performance, power, and balanced nutrition? Purple Power Equine has many products that will become essential in preparing your equine athlete for performance. Whether you need to help gut and hoof health or add weight, body, and dimension, Purple Power Equine can help bring success to your equine athlete. Gastro Power, Power Up, Hoof Power, Power Punch, Emergency Power, visit purplepowerequine.com or on Facebook at Purple Power Equine. You know, it's the same thing with the story I just told you about that's going tonight. It's, it's a, one person who nobody's written about with Rich, Rich Strike is his veterinarian, who was like a second father to the trainer's daughter and his, the whole experience there and what that family went through. I think you really enjoyed that story. But it, again, you have to go out and you got to go out and find these stories sometimes. You can't just sit around and wait for them to come to you. Yeah. So, you know, you talk a little bit about some of the people that you've met. You've met a lot of people through the years. Who are, who are people that you've rubbed elbows with that are, that you found fascinating or particularly interesting or who are people that you see in this world? Well. A lot of horse trainers, I hate to say it, are kind of boring. Okay. So, I mean, you know, there's there there some that are really good, and there's owners that, that are good. But a lot people don't realize there's a lot of, like, celebrities mm-hmm. that own horses. And, you know, I've I've interviewed a lot of celebrities over the years. I mean, I'm believe me, I'm far from starstruck. It, it just it doesn't mean that much. But I, I would be starstruck. Throw out a few names of people, of celebrities that you've talked to. Let's see. Muhammad Ali, Whoa. Bo Derek, Whoa. Joan Rivers. Wow. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole, whole bunch more. I'm trying. I'm, I'm drawing yeah. a blank on 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 all well, of them. And um, again, that's where the that's where the whole. It doesn't matter who you are or what walk of life you come from. There's that thread through all of us that we love horses. 
Right, exactly. And, you know, a lot of these celebrities, they get into the game. You know, they like the action, but they also love horses. The team that won the Stanley Cup championship this year from the Colorado Avalanche, their big defenseman, Eric Johnson, I got to know him very well. He, mm-hmm. He's got horses and he absolutely loves loves his horses. Uh, mm-hmm. Celebrity chef Bobby Flay, he's involved in the game very heavily. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, you never know all through the acting industry, movie industry, what, whatever, but you just run into, uh, you just always run into people that just love horses and, and, and it brings people together. You know, there's no more, there's no more layers anymore. Everybody comes together. Always, everybody's at the same level when it comes to horses. Is the Kentucky Derby the fanciest party out there? I mean, to me as the lay person in the horse world, it seems like the Kentucky Derby is the big deal where everybody shows up in their hats and their fancy clothes, or is there a more elite race? Well, the Derby is probably the wildest. And yes, it's in the United States, it's definitely the most elite as far as fashion goes. Uh-huh. And w- women, you know, months ahead of time will go out and start looking for their Derby hat, their Derby dresses. And one Louisville is one big party leading up to the Derby. Mm-hmm. But if you want to talk about elite, nothing mm-hmm. can top Royal Ascot mm-hmm. with the queen attends every year. And the fashion there, you want to see fashion, you go to Royal Ascot and you go in the Royal Enclosure. And mm-hmm. it's amazing is that the way I, the first way I, I described it, because, you know, all, all the men dress in top hats and tails. Wow. And the women wear these unbelievable hats, just like the Derby, even more outrageous, you know, than, than the Derby hats. So the way I always described it is that if you want to describe Royal Ascot, it's men wearing hats that all look alike and women wearing hats that all look totally different. Right. So I'm going to assume that you've been to that, to Royal Ascot. Yes. yes I've been to Royal Ascot several times. And the other venue is a race in Paris called the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, which is their biggest race. And again, here you've got the French fashion, and it's, a, again, a very, very elite race and a very elite crowd, and it's beautiful to watch. I've been to that race in Paris a few times. In fact, my wife and I spent our honeymoon in for a week in Paris leading up to the Arc de Triomphe, and she went out and bought her, you know, a hat and a fancy dress and everything, and so we went to the, uh, we went to the Arc de Triomphe, and and then actually, right after the Arc de Triomphe, we, just to deviate, we, we took a train down to Toulouse in the south of France and we rented a car. And I wound up driving like a thousand miles all through France, through the oh. wine country and the Loire Valley and the D-Day beaches and drove all wow. over France and, and going back. But basically, the, the honeymoon was centered around that, the Arc de Triomphe. And we actually, I wound up covering the Arc de Triomphe 17 years later, and my wife and I went on a second honeymoon and stayed in the same little boutique oh. hotel we stayed at in our honeymoon. And this time we brought our daughter, who was 13 at the time. So that was an amazing trip. Lucky yeah, girl. Yeah. It's, it, it, listen, racing is it's so global right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been to Dubai several times. I went there by invitation, which was great. I mean, you go there and they treat you, you know, like a rock star. You, you know, I had my own driver 24 hours a day. And wow. you up in a hotel, they paid for, a, paid for my whole family's hotel and airfare. And, and I got invited to Uruguay. There was a, fa- a horse that I covered called Invasur, who had won the Uruguayan Triple Crown. I wrote about him a lot. And I, got, and I started making calls. I actually 
made calls to people in Uruguay and got to meet a lot of influential people down there, you know, heads of the jockey club. And because of my writings and my connections, they invited me to come down for 12 days wow. to, watch, to watch their big race. And I didn't want to go because I had no clue where Uruguay was. You know, I said, I, I don't know, you know, driving, flying in South America. I was remember when I was a kid watching these movies about planes crashing in the Amazon with the headhunters and stuff. And I said, I don't know if I want to go down to South America, you know, fly, fly over the Amazon and stuff. I said, I don't what the heck is Uruguay? You know, I went on a map and looked at it. It's like this itty bitty little appendage hanging down the bottom of Brazil, you know, in the ocean. So I said, oh, God, I said, this is, you know, I don't know. This is a little bit too weird for me. And but, you know, my wife, and my daughter really wanted to go and insisted. So I gave in and we had the one most wonderful time. They are the most passionate, unbelievable horse lovers you can imagine. The big race. I mean, to show you, I'll give you an idea. This will never happen anywhere. But mm -hmm. Uruguay, 10, 15 years ago, they were going through a major crisis, financial crisis, government, and they couldn't support racing anymore. So they mm -hmm. couldn't have uh, race. They couldn't have any purse money. There was absolutely wow. no horse money to give out anymore. Anywhere else, they would have canceled racing. In Uruguay, the owners got together and they raced their horses anyway, getting nothing out of it. No, no monetary value at all. Just for wow. the sport of racing their horses. They but love I mean, it. Yeah, they, they, they love it. And, we, and they, they took us to horse farms every day. You know, they served us lunch in the farms. We got to see all the foals and the stallions. But absolute passion over the horses and we had the greatest time i know where uruguay is now yeah exactly so what is your favorite race if you could the rest of your life if you could only go back to one race a year where would it be well my favorite race i would say over the years over the long term would be the middle jewel of the triple crown the preakness stakes Okay. Which is run in Baltimore and has nothing to do with the crab cakes, which I love. Or anything, yeah. But, yeah. But I, I love the race. It's more it's more intimate. It's not as it's not like a zoo like the Kentucky Derby is. Mm -hmm. And the Belmont Stakes, the third leg is, you know, was practically in my own backyard. And it was no big deal. I always enjoyed covering the Breeders' Cup Classic. That's the main race of the Breeders' Cup because I got to see all the people, all the friends I knew from the racing journalists from all over Europe. That, you know, it was only once a year that I would get to see them. And I've always loved European racing. I've been to the English, I've said, I've been to the English Derby, Royal Ascot, the Arc de Triomphe, and Irish Derby. So those are my two favorite venues. And probably the British Cup Classic is probably ranked number one for two races, one of which I sent you with a story, the story of Kathy Ritvo and Mucho Macho Man. Yep, yep. Um, I read them all. And that to me was probably one. That may be the favorite race I ever covered. And just for people, you know, who don't know, this trainer, she's four foot ten. And she, you know, she came down with this this heart disorder called cardiomyopathy, mm -hmm. which is a deterioration of the heart muscle. And it was diagnosed five months into her pregnancy, which they had to terminate. And she wound up hooked to an IV, you know, to stimulate the heart for seven months, couldn't get out of bed. Her husband basically said she was dead. She was she was dying. There was nothing they could do unless she had a you know a heart transplant, and they did find one, but she was just about near death. And yeah, about the same time, two three hundred miles away, there was a foal born in Florida that was the mare gave birth out in the field, 
and the foal came out and was born, quote, dead. It was just lying oh there, God. lying there, motionless. And everybody's looking around. They called the breeder around. She was out. She was showing dogs at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pinchers, so she, right? She rushed, she rushed over, and the and the foal is just lying there, uh, lifeless, and everybody's crying that the you know it has this foal born dead, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the foal just <laughs> jumps to his feet and starts <laughs> running around the field. When I read that sentence in your story, I just wanted to cheer. It's like, yay, good job, baby. Get up there and run. <laughs> yeah, well, and the thing is, is so, you know, the, the, way you, the way you can actually say it, the way you word it, if you put it in quotes or so, but Kathy Ritvo and this horse, who later named Mucho Macho Man, both rose from the dead and yeah. somehow were united. She became his trainer and... They wound up winning the Breeders' Cup Classic, which is the richest horse race in North America. And he was, uh, it's just an amazing story. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things I ever saw was after I watched the race with her down by the rail. And, you know, she's cheering her horse on. And I, <laughs> this is funny, a little sidebar to it. Mm-hmm. I had written in the story how Mucho Macho Man in his career going into the, the Breeders' Cup Classic was 0 for 14 when he did not have the lead at the eighth pole, which is an eighth of a mile from the finish line. He'd always get beat. He could not catch another horse. But when he had the lead at the eighth pole, he was six for six. Nobody could catch him. In the race, he wound up getting a a lead by the eighth pole and holding on to win by a nose. And after the race, his jockey, who's a Hall of Famer, Gary Stevens, sees me and has this big smile and says, thank you. He says, I just want to let you know that I was thinking of you when I came to the top of the quarter pole, knowing I've got to get the lead at the eighth pole or I'm not going to win. So he got the lead. He managed to push the horse to get the lead in the eighth pole and he hung on and he won race by a nose. That's but, awesome. But he, and, and Cassie Ritvo didn't even know who won. So we're watching the replay together and they're watching it in slow motion. And she's, she's going, come on, boy, come on. Boy. And she's watching a replay as if it was live. <laughs> Right. You know, the race is over. It's just a question of who won, and she's cheering the horse on. And finally, they post the horse his number, and she just dashes when the horse comes back, and she just runs and goes over to the horse and gives him a big hug and kiss. And watching her run to the horse, I think back that it was only three years earlier, but she couldn't get out of bed. Wow. She was. She was. I mean, she was on an IV for seven months. Could not get out of bed and was near death. And here she is running to her horse, who had just won the richest race in North America. Oh, goosebumps! Those are the those are what makes make the stories so appealing, and you just get invested in it. Like like that, you know what? And this leads me to another question. So we look at this, and I'm looking at my notes here. The yeah. different stories that you told, you know, Mucho Macho Man, Invisible Ink. Can I just interrupt? And just quickly yeah. give you one more, one more Breeders' Cup Classic. Ranked up there, also just as special. It was 2001 when his horse Tiznow, who I'd become very close to, it, where he was running in the Breeders' Cup Classic, he had won it the year before. No horse had ever won it two years in a row. This year, the Breeders' Cup Classic was held at Belmont Park in New York, less than two months after 9/11. Wow! And I had gone to Belmont the week after 9/11, driving over the Verrazano Bridge looking out and seeing the smoldering ashes and no World Trade Center. I wanted to see what it was like at Belmont Park. And I went to Belmont Park 
I talk to people, you know, people who are affected by it. And then I see a horse walking in a shed row and it's his now. He had come from California to run the week before and they wouldn't let him go back to California. So he had to stay in New York. Right. Anyway, I went to, you know, cover the race and it was surreal. You go to the race that day, they had dogs checking, sniffing around, checking cars. There were snipers with assault weapons up on the roof. Everybody was checked. I mean, the atmosphere was unbelievable. I remember talking when I went to the track that morning. There was a, a stable called Godolphin, which is owned by Sheikh Mohammed from Dubai. Mm-hmm. And the assistant trainer who was, was telling me that all the grooms and the, ex, the exercise right there who were Pakistani and, and Arabs, and he told them, listen, don't stay in the barn. Don't go out. You know, you don't know what's going to go on. Well, as it turns out, that day... Four races leading up to the Classic were won by foreign horses, including two horses owned by Arabs. And then we come to the Classic, and America is like ready to have the dagger plunge in its heart in New York, in America, to get beat four races in a row by foreign horses. Mm -hmm. And Tisnow was back again, and he had been having back problems all year, and he was not the same horse he was the previous year. And there was a big Irish horse coming over, but there was another horse that had just won the Arc de Triomphe called Saki, who was owned by Sheikh Mohammed. So, was, you know, he's got an Arab horse. I mean, nobody knew how good he was, but he had won the Arc de Triomphe by like six lengths. They come into the stretch and Saki makes his big move and storms to the lead. And he's got the race won. And I said, oh, my God, not, not only are the foreigners going to win the last five races, but the last one, the big one, is going to be won by an Arab-owned horse in New right. York right after 9-11. And yeah. I don't know what happened, but Tisnow reached back and he came on again, dug in and rallied back again and got up and beat Saki by a nose. And, and the track announcer, Tom Durkin, saying, is, is like going, and Tisnow wins it for America. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was that, that to me also was, a memorable moment. And, you know, I feel privileged to have been able to cover both those races and write, you know, 3,500 word stories on both races. Oh, I have goosebumps right now. I feel like I'm watching. I mean, as you describe it, I feel like I'm watching it in real life. That's what racing. And listen, that's what racing and horses are all about. You know, goosebumps is magic to my ears. (laughs) Yeah. People tell me the story, you know, brought them to tears. It's not me that brought them to tears. It's the horse that they're reading about. Well, it is, but you do have a talent, a gift. I'm not sure how to describe it, but, and again, we all come back to this one. We come back to the story on Linda's chief, you know, to you, it was maybe not the most significant horse or the most significant story that you've told through the years, but to me, it pulled me right in. And that's why I, it was awesome. So how, how do these racehorses get their names? Oh, all different. All different they're, ways. They're all, they're all, all different ways. Depends okay. on the owner. If you know somebody named Linda, you know, you can yeah. name it Linda. A lot of horses are named after people. Some are named after famous people. One owner and trainer, John Nehrud, who I became very close to. I used to go to his birthday every year. He lived until 102. Mm-hmm. But he was on a horse. And when he was younger and he, and the horse threw him, he went head over heels over the horse and mm-hmm. hit his head and didn't pay any attention to it. And 
he went about his business and he just, you know, he wasn't feeling well. Anyway, as it turned out, he was near death. He needed emergency brain surgery. Oh, my goodness. He, his wife knew somebody, a famous clinic in Boston, and she rushed him, drove him to Boston. And he had a surgery, which actually they needed to go back in again and do a second surgery. And after the surgery, he calls a doctor in, doctor named Dr. Charles Fager came in, who did the surgery on him. And he said, Doc, I want you to sign your name right here. And he signed his name. And what it was, was that he, John, Nehru had written out an authorization to name a horse after him. Wow. He says, okay. He said, you just signed an authorization to me to name a horse after him. So he named the horse Dr. Fager, and he became one of the greatest horses in the history of horse racing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, these stories are so cool. They're so cool. Yeah. You want, me to tell you, you want me to tell you the greatest named horse of all time? Yes. A lot of a lot of owners will name horses after the sire and the dam. Yeah, that's what we do usually in our industry. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to give you the name of the horse and I'll tell you the sire and the dam. Okay. Okay. Tell me if this isn't the best named horse ever. The name of the horse was Bedpan. <laughs> okay. And the breeding of the horse, right? Yeah. The sire was ring for nurse, and the dam was beware below. <laughs> oh, my God. It is. That is perfect. How did Bedpan do as a performance animal? That horse didn't do very well. Didn't do very well. So yeah. what is, so what's your, if you had to name a famous racehorse, who is your famous, fam, favorite racehorse? Well, it was the horse that actually, you know, got me started earlier. Of course, Damascus, who actually ran against, that, who was also one of the all-time greats himself. And he ran the same year as Dr. Fager did. Oh, but as it okay. turns out, you know, I was Damascus is the one who got me the horse that got me interested in horse racing. And I've, you know, I got very emotional going to a Claiborne farm in Kentucky and visiting his grave. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he really did open the whole doors for me. And I've written so much about him. And, you know, I was just a novice, wide eyed 20 year old back then. And he was my hero. I mean, I just absolutely loved the horse. And I always feared Dr. Fager because he was such a great horse. He came and had a tremendous rivalry. Ironically, I wound up writing the book on Dr. Fager, <laughs> not the Matthews. So you did. So you, how many books do you have out there? I've written six books. Wow. Awesome. In fact, one of them, if I ever get back into storage, I could send you one. But if you like these kind of stories, one of my books was called Tales from the Triple Crown. And it's okay. all my personal experiences telling the behind-the-scenes stories of the, all the Triple Crown races I've covered, stories that most people don't know about, just real, real behind-the-scenes stories, uh, a lot of human interest stories, brings out a lot of, the, again, a lot of the passion. It's called Tales from the Triple Crown. It's on Amazon, but I'll see if I can find a copy, and uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. If you like oh, these I kind of you. stories, I think you'll like the book, because the book is filled with all those kind of stories. Again, we've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't matter that I've never sat on a racehorse. It's just the horse itself. I mean, I'm from the performance horse, pleasure horse industry, but I still love to read these stories because it gives insight to the people, the places, the lifestyle. And we just, it's a connection. Oh, it definitely is. Like I said, it's a bond, you know, and it goes back to centuries. Yeah. And listen, also, if it wasn't for horses and horse racing, I never would have met my wife. She's always been an inspiration to me because she was actually working in public relations at the time. And 
I actually wrote, but if you ask me my favorite column I ever wrote, probably mm-hmm. one of my longest, and every everybody who read it just loves it. I wrote a column a few years ago called A Love Letter to Joan. I basically tell everybody how pathetic I was before, <laughs> before I met her and how, how we met and what a coward I was and all our experiences in the horse industry and over the years. And this year will be our 42nd anniversary. Aww. And how, how, how I really was... I had a tremendous inferiority complex as a, when I was young. I'm still doing it in, in a way. Oh, Steve. And, and, so uh, I, I was, you're I my was, idol. I mean, look oh, at you. Uh, look look at the you. career that you've uh, built. I was, I was always tongue-tied around girls. I couldn't talk to girls. I was <laughs> shy. And, and here's this beautiful girl who was, who was a model. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm never going to be able to talk to her. And, you know, we fi- I finally met. I talked to her on the phone for a long time. I was just a coward to meet her. <laughs> And finally, you know, she she wanted to meet, and I finally somehow stirred up the courage. Met her in New York. She worked on Madison Avenue, and it was ninety five degrees out, and I'm dressed in a three piece suit. I said, <laughs> I got I got to give it my best shot here, right? you know. Right, right. And I got there, and all of a sudden, we had become so close on the phone. But seeing her in person, I saying, I can't, I can't. I'm totally outclassed here. I said, oh. I, I don't know what to say. And it's become a running joke for 40 years, by the way, that the first thing I ever asked her, I said, trying to make conversation, I said, so uh, how many floors in your apartment building? <laughs> I, and then it's like, oh, boy, did I just blow it? What a dummy. I, I said, I'm even more pathetic than I thought I was. And somehow she kept wanting to you know, pursue a relationship. And I, I don't know how I never thought it would be, but, you know, married 42 years, we oh. now have a daughter and two grandchildren and. Well, congratulations on 42. And I am absolutely going to look up that a love letter to Joan. I cannot wait to read it. I, I think a lot of it is tender. There's a lot of right poetry as well. And it's, there's a lot of poetry in there. And I, I a lot of it is funny, you know, especially the parts where I totally denigrate myself. <laughs> but it, the whole thing is how we met. It's actually on secretariat.com. It's also on bloodhorse.com. Okay. Uh, I'm going to look if, that if, up. If you, go on, if you go on bloodhorse.com, well, if you want, I can send you a link to it. Yeah, why don't you do that? And I'll put it in our show notes and also share it on our Hip Vip, which is our Horse Industry Podcast VIP page. That's okay, a fun I'll, place for me to share that. I'll send you a link to the Blood Horse story because the Blood Horse story I included like about six or so color photographs. Love at, it. At the bottom of the story. So awesome. Um, you can see it th- that way. But I would yeah, love that. That probably you. got more response than, than most of the stuff I wrote. Maybe it's a little vain to say, but you know, I, I like to read it up from on occasion. It just brings yeah. me back. It's a, one column I always like to read over and over again because it's so personal. That's awesome. Well, Steve, okay, we're going to wrap this up. We just have a couple minutes left. Yeah. And what brought me to you was Linda's Chief. I mean, I can't leave this episode without talking about Linda's Chief. Can you give me a two-minute synopsis of that story that you shared? Sure. Well, the main thing about Linda's Chief is that it, its focus is actually around Secretariat, who everybody knows is a lot of people consider maybe the greatest horse of all time. Mm-hmm. And it focuses around one race going into the Sanford Stakes at Saratoga. And going into the race, Secretariat had all the reputation, but he had just broken his maiden, which means he won his first the first start of his life. You have to mm-hmm. win a maiden race before you can go on. And then he won an allowance race. Now he's running in a stakes race for the first time. Linda's chief was undefeated in five races and had already won three stakes in a row. And he actually, for the first time in the in Secretariat's career, 
He was not the favorite. Linda Steve was the only horse ever to be favored over Secretariat. And Secretariat, you know, wound up beating him. And he obviously went on to be an unbelievable, the greatest of all time. And yeah. Linda Steve went on to a very good career, won a lot of, you know, won a lot of races, went out to California. And at one point, they actually wanted to have a match race between Linda Steve and Secretariat. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Secretariat got sick and lost his next race. Linda's chief wound up losing a race he should have won. So they had canceled that match race. But one of the trainers I was very friendly with, Bobby Frankel, was the trainer that he had in California. And he loved Linda's chief. He thought he was the best horse he ever trained. And he went to run him in the Santa Anita Derby, which was a big race out there. He had won the two big races leading up to it. And another trainer, Pancho Martin, who had this horse, Sham, who became Secretariat's arch rival in Triple Crown. Mm-hmm. And Pancho Martin, what he did is that he put a, he put another horse in the race and changed jockeys in the morning of the race to put a more experienced rider on because Linda's chief had the second outside post and the other horse that he put in, Nightly Dawn, had the outside post. And sure enough, Bobby Frankel was suspect. Sure enough, after the break, the jockey on Nightly Dawn came in and absolutely squeezed Linda's chief right out of the race. The expression we use is sawed off. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it took him a while to recover, and he did, but he wound up finishing second to Sham. But mm-hmm. until the day, day he died, Bobby Frankel <laughs> never forgot that uh, how they messed him up. They messed up Linda's Chief. Right. And, uh, and unfortunately, the sad part is that Linda's Chief was sent to California, and he wasn't quite the same horse, but he still ran well. And then they ran him in, in a race, and I don't know what happened. I don't know if he had a heart attack or he was injured or he just went berserk, but he darted towards the rail and tried to jump over the rail and landed badly on his on his back and it mm. turned out he had broken his back and his pelvis and that unfortunately had to put him to sleep right on the racetrack uh mm-hmm. so he never got a chance to prove himself at stud and he's like one of the forgotten horses but it was through linda's chief that secretariat made that big leap to stardom you know by running against him and he mm. became a trivia you know question yeah. about who was the only horse ever that was favorite over secretary but people forget he was a tremendous horse in his own right because he wound up winning a lot of stakes after he was beaten by secretariat winning stakes in in california and chicago and new york and he was a tremendous uh, racehorse but one of the forgotten racehorses of that generation and i love that you capture these stories of these forgotten racehorses well that's what it's all about like i said it's all about the stories and the storytelling So that's our story this week. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to spending more time with you and sharing stories of our industry. See you next week.